Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. If you are new here, we are currently studying the Old Testament book of Nehemiah together. We've been going uh, verse by verse through this entire book. And uh, just to let you know, I, I want to pray for us, and you can pray for me. It's been a rough weekend for me. First off, uh, my wife and my mom and my wife and our nieces took my oldest daughter and went to Chicago for a week. They had a great day, planned, way, planned uh, just shopping and having a good time. But that left me home with four children. Amen. Come on, give me some sympathy, please. And everyone were like, nah. Listen, my two-year-old daughter owned me for two days, okay? Ran me ragged. All right, markers on the wall, I wipe them off, a different color on the wall, I wipe them off again, she finds a third marker, she owned me for three days, or two days, okay, felt like three days though. Uh, so I was exhausted, and, uh, and my wife just had a big old smile on her face when she got home. And then uh, on Friday also, my, my wife's uh, brother, and my brother-in-law, he's an arborist in Denver, at the Denver area, and he actually had an accident and fell out of a tree, fell 50 feet out of a tree and, and broke nearly every bone in his body. And it was a miracle that he was still alive. And, uh, but he's had in the last two days, back surgery, leg surgery, probably he's got more surgeries to come, possibly torn his aorta. So it's been a weekend for me. And of course, I've got a lot of children that are sick. They're at home right now. And I caught a little, little, you know, uh, just cough, basically. So I need all the help I can get this morning, okay? So please pray for me. I'll pray for you. And let's ask God to show up and help us out in our study of the word this morning. Gracious Father, uh, we don't put any of our trust in man. All of our trust is in you. And our hope this morning isn't in my ability. Our hope is in the word. Our hope is in the word of God that it's going to do what it's uh, meant to do. And that's raise the dead. And that's instruct those who need to be instructed, shape us, bring conviction of sin, challenge us, call us into something greater, show us the goodness and the glory of Jesus. Do what you came to do this morning, Jesus. 
I ask that the Holy Spirit would think through my mind and uh, speak through my vocal cords. God, I ask that you would use me. Uh, I need help this morning. I desperately need help this morning. And so I pray that you'd watch over us, protect us, that your sheep would hear your voice, that you are the great shepherd of the sheep, and that you would instruct us in the way that we should go, and this would bring about your glory and our good. <clears throat> in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, just to get us caught up really quick, the book of Nehemiah tells the story of the return of the Israelite exiles to rebuild the city walls and renew the covenant that they had broken with God. Now, Scripture tells us in Proverbs 14.34 that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The idea is this, and listen, this is a universal principle. When a nation worships God, God lifts that nation up. When they walk in his ways, generally speaking, it goes well for them. But when that people refuse to worship God and refuse to walk in his ways, he brings judgment upon them. John Calvin wrote, quote, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. The people of Israel had turned away from God. They refused to walk in his ways, and therefore God gave them wicked rulers, wicked kings who broke covenant with him and then led God's people into all kinds of idolatry. God eventually brought a devastating judgment upon this nation by handing them over to the pagan nations when, when they were, so remember the pagan nations came in, destroyed their temple, destroyed the city, and carried off the best and the brightest of their people off into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. God basically says, you don't want me? You don't want my ways? Fine. I'll let you feel, I'll let you experience what it looks like to worship with the pagans, to live like they live. Now, it's my contention that our nation is in a similar state today. That we have rejected God as a nation, and now God has handed us over to be governed by many wicked rulers who call evil good. The prophet Isaiah warned, quote, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Paul goes on in the book of Romans and tells us that when mankind rejects God, they refuse to acknowledge him as God or give thanks to him as God, judgments come upon those people and those judgments are very specific. Here's what he says in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. I'm going to say they became stupid. And their foolish hearts were darkened, turned towards the darkness. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for basically idols, created things. See, God says when you reject him, you are actually rejecting rationality. When you reject God, you're rejecting wisdom. And you become a fool 
A fool says in his heart, there is no God. Your thinking becomes futile. What does that mean? That means worthless, without reason or purpose. I don't know if you saw it this week, but Cambridge Dictionary made headlines this week by caving to radical leftist activists of the sexual revolution by changing the definition of man and woman in its dictionary. Man, quote, I have to put quotes now around, scare quotes around man, now includes the definition, an adult who lives and identifies as a male, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. Interesting. In the same vein, the updated definition of woman reads, an adult who lives and identifies as female, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. This is an example of God's judgment upon us, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Maybe in the definition in the future, black will be white, up will be down, and hot will be cold. Now remember, one of the themes of Advent is that we are not afraid to look at the dark. It's in the darkness where we realize we need light. So when I point out an aspect of our culture that is without question broken and going to lead to further brokenness and destruction, it is because I am hoping that in our brokenness, we learn that we need healing. In our foolishness, we learn we need wisdom, and that's God. Mankind cannot reject its creator without consequence. We say there is no God, and we say that we are gods in our own making. We say that we can redefine manhood and womanhood. We can redefine human sexuality according to our own desires, and we can redefine marriage. God says several times in Romans, when mankind does this, he gives them up. What does that mean? He hands them over. He's the parent that said a hundred times, don't touch the stove. And then finally he's like, give it a try. Fine, I'm tired of yanking your hand away. Give it a try. Maybe it's not hot. Maybe that burning red, maybe I'm wrong, right? You want your way? I'll let you have your way. And this is what Romans says again. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. You want to do that with your body? Fine. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, again, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. So here's the bad news, church. This morning, as a nation, we have rejected God and he has given us up to be ruled by wicked rulers with debased minds who call evil good and good evil. But in the midst of that darkness, here's the good news. God has also given us a way out. God has also shown us where the light is, where we can lead, be led forward into the truth, into healing, into hope. He is gracious, and he says this in 2 Chronicles 7.14, quote, 
if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. That's the good news this morning. And what we've been studying the past several weeks in Nehemiah is we've seen, listen, this cycle, we've seen it happening in Nehemiah. Remember that they disobeyed God and they got sent off and it did not go well for them and they got sent off into Babylonian captivity. But then God has brought a renewal. God has brought a revival. They have been cast down and rejected and cursed. And now you see people respond to God and they're brought to repentance. And now you see them start being lifted out of their sinfulness and lifted out of their stupidity. They have humbled themselves and prayed and sought God's face and turned from their wicked ways. And God has heard from heaven, forgiven their sin and brought healing to their city. Right? We've seen it. The last couple of weeks, we have gotten a glimpse of what that renewal process looked like. Like, what did God do at first when, when God brought them back there and they rebuilt the city and the right worship of God had freedom? They started preaching or the, they said what? They, they had a desire for God's word. And so they cried out for Ezra, bring Ezra before us. Have Ezra bring the book. We want to know the words of God. And then the words of God are read and it brought deep repentance and contrition for their sins in their heart, right? And then they cried out for forgiveness and God forgave their sin. And then last week we saw that the joy of the Lord was their strength. They were led from weeping to joy, right? That's what happened last week. But here's what we're going to see. If we want to see God heal our city, and I believe he can, and I believe he wants to, and I believe he will. He's going to do it in, the, in a similar way as he's always done it. The similar cycle that he's always done it as you study the Bible. And what we're going to see, if we want this to happen in our city, we need to follow Nehemiah's Roadmap for revival. Now, so far what we've seen <clears throat> is basically the process so far has been primarily individual. Individuals gathered before the people, heard the word of God read, confessed their sins, repented, received forgiveness, and went away rejoicing. Great. That's step one. It starts in the hearts of God's people. Right? Revival, renewal starts in the hearts of God pe God's people. Step two is this. The fathers must bring the spiritual renewal home. Step two is this. The fathers must bring the spiritual renewal home. Look at our text this morning. Chapter 8, verse 13. <clears throat> On the second day, okay, day two of revival. Day one, lots of personal renewal. Day two, what happens? On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses, okay? So we've got fathers, and then look. With the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. So here's what happens. Day two on revival, we have fathers... And we have spiritual fathers, okay? The pastors, the priests, the Levites. The fathers and the spiritual fathers are gathering together with Ezra and they want to be taught the words of God. Now, this, is, this is interesting. 
The prophet Micah tells us that one of the signs of spiritual renewal, one of the signs of revival, of God moving amongst his people, is that God will, quote, turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That's what we see happen here in Ezra. The fathers and the spiritual fathers come together and they're not coming together to just grill out. They're not coming together to just have some bro time. They're not coming together to watch the game. They're coming together to study the words of God. Spiritual renewal heart starts in the hearts of God's people. And then step two, fathers must bring it home to their families. Men, <clears throat> God has called us to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. Listen, that has always been difficult. You realize the first sin in the garden wasn't even eating the apple. The first sin in the garden was Adam allowing Eve to listen to the words of Satan and obey the words of Satan instead of God. Basically, the first sin in the garden was Adam not leading his home. And this is interesting because I'm really excited and I've been studying this a lot because after this sermon series in Nehemiah is over and in February we're beginning a 12-week sermon series studying Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. We're calling it origins. We're going back to study the origins of mankind, the origins of creation. What does manhood look like? What does womanhood look like? What does masculinity look like? What does femininity look like? What is, how, how should we parent our children? On and on and on. We're going to spend 12 weeks in these. But right now, I just want you to get this in your mind. Adam failed to lead his house when sin was not present in him. Okay? So, how much more difficult is, is, is it now to lead our homes, men? When we are dealing with our own sin, the sin of our wife, the sin of our kids, right? The sins all around us, it is incredibly difficult. So what I'm going to say today to you men, first, I want you, I want to acknowledge it's hard, all right? And I'm going to, women, I'm, I'm, I, ladies, I'm speaking mainly to the men here today, but I'm doing it for your good, okay? So just help me out this morning, all right? I know how hard it, I, I don't know how personal hard it is to be a woman, but let me just say, I know how hard it is to be a man. And men, I'm going to acknowledge this. It's hard to be a man. It's really hard. It's hard to lead our, our homes spiritually. It's even more difficult for us to lead our family into the things of God today. We are being told by our culture that the distinctiveness of manhood and womanhood the distinctives that are taught in scripture and have been recognized by nearly every culture in the world and every civilization in history are simply cultural constructs that were created to oppress women. I don't have time to go into all the ways that this is foolish, but this is a lie from Satan. When a godly man leads his home, his wife flourishes. His kids flourish. Masculine strength is meant to create safety in the home, in the church, and in the world. Now, of course, as with anything, we can use our strength for good or for evil. 
That's why our strength needs to be first submitted to God's word over everything. We see here that the fathers and the spiritual fathers come together for a Bible study. They aren't here to get their own way. They don't gather together, let's see, how we, let's, what do we got to do to get these ladies to do what we want? That's not why they're gathering together. They're coming together to study the word of God, to say, God, instruct us on reality. What does it look like to be a man? What does it look like to be a woman? What does it look like to obey you? What do you expect from us? What have you done for us? We want to know how you shape the world, and we want to live rightly in it. Teach us from your word. Men, this should be our posture as well. We should be fully submitted to the word of God and fully committed to doing what we find there when we read it. James warns us, James the brother of Jesus, against being hearers only, we must be doers of God's word. So men, what does it mean to spiritually lead your home? First thing it means is to come to the word of God and say, instruct me and then I'm going to obey it. Step one, right? Step one, I got to know the word. Step two, I got to understand the word. Step three, I need to obey the word and bring it home. Look what happens in 8 verse 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths. Now booths, so so you don't get too confused by that word, Think tents, think man-made structures, temporary structures, okay? During the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Now, this is interesting. (laughs) Maybe it is for me. You guys are going to be like, or probably like, oh, Make tents. They opened up the word of God and the word of God said, go make tents. What the heck does this have to do with anything? Well, this is kind of interesting. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, thankfully here, you know, men, when, when they read their Bible, they, are, they were to be reminded every year that they were to make a tent and basically go on a week-long camp out with their families. All right? That's kind of cool, I think. Now, they... This was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And it was a week-long celebration that occurred after the harvest. God told them to build tents or booths and live in them for a week to remember, listen, how they lived in tents while he led them out of Egypt and how he met their every need. So for a week every year, they were to live in a tent, rest, and worship God in the Feast of Booths. Now, I think this is absolutely awesome. These men were to gather their families together, build a tent for a week out of the year. They were meant to um, embody a story, okay? They were meant to teach their children, teach their wives, to lead their families to remember that they were a part of a people that were possessed by God. Literally, God owned them. God saved them. And they were meant to live their life for a week in a way that was going to draw questions out of their children. Can you imagine this? Right? It's harvest time. It's the seventh month. They open it up. They're, hey, what are we supposed to do? We're going to make tents. What? 
All right, guys, I want you, everybody spread out. Go grab sticks. We're going to build them together. We're going to put them together. And we're going to sleep in a tent for a week. That's what we're going to do. You know the kids love this. The kids go do it. And then we get them together and they say, Dad, why are we doing this? We're acting like we're poor for a week. We're playing poor for a week. Dad, why are we playing poor? We're li- Our house is right, they're, they're, they literally build these things on top of their roof, some of them. They're like, Dad, you know we got a TV down there, right? Why are we playing poor? We're playing poor for a week, right? Now, this is interesting. Fathers were meant to teach their children why they were doing what they were doing. And what they were meant to do was to remind them we're a part of a story. God has been telling a story from the beginning and, and it's, we're in the middle of it now and it's going to be finished one day. And I, this week-long celebration is to remind you that God rescued us from Egypt. Now, what is that? what's the significance, significance of that? We are story-shaped people. We need to know where we came from. We need to know who we are. We need to know why are we here? What am I supposed to do? And we figure those things out through stories, right? We, we learn how to be men and women through stories. One of the best depictions of the story of scripture that I've ever heard in a sentence is, here's basically the Bible. Kill the dragon, win the girl. Okay? In the garden, Adam failed to kill the dragon, right? And so what did Jesus do? Jesus Christ came to kill the dragon, Satan, win the girl, his church, the bride of Christ, right? And over and over and over, you learn, you see that story throughout scripture. Men, that's meant to teach us something. We have a calling bigger than just putting food on the table. We are here to push back against Satan. We are here to push back against darkness. We are here to raise future dragon slayers. They're meant to grow up and not just want to become accountants and everything else, but want to push back darkness whenever they can. And this is so interesting to me because this little week-long celebration would have been a perfect time to embody and to create an awareness in their children that they were part of a story. Think about it. Why are we, why are we having this little tent? Because, son, a long time ago, God chose us out of all the peoples of the world. He came down and chose Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you many people. And then through a lot, a lot of rebellious and stupidity from God's people, they ended up in, in Egyptian slavery. And what did God do? God came down and rescued us, our forefathers, with his mighty hand out of the grip of the most powerful king on the earth, Pharaoh. The richest, with the best army, the best military, king on the earth, God came down and said, you ain't nothing, boy, and rescued us out of his grip. We were in a really bad place, son. And we were there because our fathers rejected God, and God did what he said he would do, and that is give us over to pagan nations. But then, because God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he raised up a deliverer for us. Moses, he protected Moses when they they were trying to kill Moses. He protected her in, in the stream and then Moses was raised up in Pharaoh's house and from his own house, in the midst of that darkness, God raised up a deliverer. And then, 
When Moses stood up and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh denied God many times, God crushed Pharaoh many times over. And Pharaoh sent us out, and we went out, and then all of a sudden Pharaoh changed his mind, and Pharaoh came chasing after us. And it was Pharaoh's army backed us up against the Red Sea, and we thought we were going to be destroyed, but then God came down and opened up the Red Sea, and we walked through it. And then here come Pharaoh and his army, and we thought, oh man, this is going to go bad for us. And then as soon as we got to the other side, God brought the waves crushing in around them in judgment. God was faithful, son. God delivered us. When everything looked broken and everything looked dark, light came bursting in. When evil was all around us, God rescued us and God redeemed us. God will never fail us, son. We must remain faithful to him. So this week-long time, after that, after he delivered us out of that Egyptian slavery, and we get on the other side, our people acted stupid. They started complaining against God saying, you're not good enough for us. We want to go back to Egypt. So what did God do? God allowed us to go on a 40-year camping trip. And we, had a, we lived in tents for 40 years. Your great-great-grandfather was a moron, son. He disobeyed God. But in the midst of that 40-year-long camping trip, when they were living in booths, God met their every need. When there wasn't enough... Food, he rained it down from heaven. When there wasn't enough water, he opened up a rock. And guess what? Their sandals never wore out. God is faithful even when we're unfaithful, son. God has a story and you're a part of it, son. God's going to renew this creation. God's going to redeem this creation. God's going to cast out the dragon, son. And you're a part of that story. You were raised to be a dragon slayer, son. See? So the men gather their families together. They play poor person for a week. They build little tents on their house and they tell their family the story. You're a part of this. Look at verse 16. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. Can you, can you picture this in your mind's eye? We just got the walls rebuilt. The city's being rebuilt. And now all of a sudden for a week, there's all these little shanty structures set up everywhere, right? It, it literally looks like Skid Row, all right? It looks like Skid Row after 5 p.m. if you've ever been there, right? All the stores close and, in, and just it becomes a cardboard shantytown, right? This is what's happening. And all the people leave all their luxurious goods, whatever they've got downstairs, and they go camp out for a week. Verse 15. Was that where I'm at? I'm sorry. What's that? Okay. Got it. 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the day of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. There was very great rejoicing. Now this is interesting. Remember from last week that the joy of the Lord is our strength. God doesn't want us sad and grieving forever. When he grieves us, it's meant to grieve us into repentance and then we turn to him and then he gives us joy and that joy is our strength. As we submit our lives to God and we commit to following his ways and faithfully obeying the scriptures, whatever it is we find there, God brings greater joy into our life. 
These folks did not see his commands as burdensome. There, the, it, the end result was very great rejoicing. Look at verse 18. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Men, this is what revival is supposed to look like. Men submitting themselves to God and to the words of God and then bringing those words home to lead their families in the right worship of God. This is not misogyny. This is not meant to be abusive. This is not oppressive to women. This isn't men leading in such a way where the wife and kids are sad and groan under his leadership. This is spiritual leadership that leads to rejoicing. Listen, I, in 11 years, now listen, I, let me say this first. I hear nothing but toxic masculinity from our culture. I hear nothing but women are oppressed and men are awful. And maybe they are out there. Maybe that's the problem out there, right? I, I, I have no idea. But what I know is inside this church that I have pastored for 11 years, when I meet with a couple or I meet with a, a wife, nine times out of 10, she says this to me. I wish he could lead our home. I wish he was a spiritual leader. I wish he loved the Bible as much as I love the Bible. I wish he would, would be more involved in our children's life. I wish he would read the Bible. I wish when I'm not feeling great and I say, I kind of feel like skipping church today, he would look at me and say, no, 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 we're going to church today. Men, if she gives you a way out, to go to church and you take it, you are not the spiritual leader of your home and you are not doing what God called you to do. Too many men have given the mantle of leadership over to their wife and they basically say, honey, tell me, how, tell me what to do. Tell me how to lead. What do you want from me? And they're not interested in the things of God. Now listen, some of that is the church. I'm gonna, right? Churches get things off and wrong, Right? I remember coming to churches and they made me hold hands. And I was like, well, I'm not holding nobody's hand. <laughs> like singing prom songs to Jesus and stuff. I felt very weird about going to church, okay? Now, I like it here. They're like, follow, you know, first step, go on a camping trip. Sounds great. Let's do that, right? But what? Memorize the word of God. Come under the authority of the word of God. Men, we're called to be spiritual leaders in our home. It's been said, as the father goes, so goes the family. Listen, I think I just read this week, for the first time in history, well, America is the worst country on the planet when it comes to fatherlessness. 23% of all children will be born into this world without any active father in their life. 23%. This has never happened in human civilization before. Almost all of the societal problems that we are experiencing right now is because of a lack of present godly fathers in the home. You can trace it from poverty. You can trace it to abortion. You can trace it to drug use. You can trace it to depression and suicide. The majority of our problems in our society is not toxic masculinity. It's a lack of masculinity. Biblical masculinity in the home. 
It's been said, and it is true, as the father goes, so goes the home. And as the home, go, or as the home goes, so goes the nation. And as the nation goes, so goes the world. Now, I know when I say things like that, immediately, and we've been taught to feel this way too, we push back, we feel weird, we feel bad, because what about those who don't have fathers? I know. I'm concerned for you too. What about those whose husband has left them? Well, thankfully, God has answered those questions from us. It's not don't look at the situation. Fatherlessness is a real problem. We have to talk about it. The last lack of godly masculinity and godly spiritual leadership is a real problem. Christianity is not a feminine religion. I don't mean it's only masculine, but in our mind, many many times we think the church as a whole is made up of 60% women. So many times in our our minds, we think, oh, that's kind of spirituality or Christianity. It's kind of of a ladies thing. I'll just come along for the ride. No, it's not. It's made for all of us. So what does God say to those who didn't have a godly father? What does God say to those who didn't have a present father? What does God say to those whose husband has walked away or father has walked away? This is what he says in Psalm 68, 4 through 6. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary, the the alone, the loner in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. What does God say to those who didn't have a good father or a present father or a present husband in the home? He says this, I will be your dad. I am the father to the fatherless. He is our perfect heavenly father who will never leave us or forsake us. That God has called us into his family by grace and through faith. And he's given us a new family. That's what the church is. The church is his new family on this earth. And now what does that mean for us? That means we have a new father. So we can be refathered. The wounds that we experience from our earthly father can be healed and reshaped and reformed and renewed by our relationship with our heavenly father. And this is a lifelong process. You're going to have to, there's a movie out that says, if our fathers are our models for God, what does that say about God? It's the wrong question. Our fathers should not be our model for God because our fathers fail us. All of them do. God is God, the perfectly heavenly father. And so all the wounds that we receive from our father are meant to be brought to the heavenly father and healed by the heavenly father. He is the present father. He is the loving father. He is the kind father. He is the father that instructs us and teaches us and helps us on the way. He is the father we never had. God is that. And this is so interesting. We are formed and deformed within our family of origin. And so God says, I'm going to form you and reform you in a new family, the church. I'm going to give you new, not only a new heavenly father, but also new brothers and sisters. Could have been worse. All right. 
We're good. We're good. We're good. Whew. All right. And there we go. Don't know how to move on from there, but we'll figure it out. How about this? Open up your Bibles to 1 John. We can do this. 1 John chapter 5. Listen to this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. So two words there. Jesus, this is his name as a man. In Christ, this is the role. So the whole Old Testament, remember, is looking forward. Who's going to be the dragon killer? Who's going to kill Satan? Who's going to make this world right? Who's going to drive out all the darkness from this world? That person is the Christ. We're looking for the Christ. In all the Old Testament, we look, we look, we look. We never find him. But then Jesus shows up, and now Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. And listen what John tells us. Everyone who believes, that's the faith, that Jesus is the Christ, the dragon slayer, has been born of God. Jesus himself said, you cannot enter into my kingdom unless you're born again. Being born of God means to be born again. We were born the first time through our mother by earthly seed. We're born the second time through heavenly seed. The Holy Spirit comes into our heart, changes our mind, gives us the mind of Christ, and we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we're born again into something different. Listen to me. Christianity is not first about being a better man. First, Christianity is not first about being a better woman. Christianity first is not being better. Christianity first is about becoming brand new born again through the power of the gospel. But then, once you're brand new, men, look what happens. And everyone who loves the Father, so we're given the love, we, we begin, God loved us and we begin to love the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. What's he saying? We're, we're to love our brothers and sisters. We've been given a new family and now we're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. By this, we know that we love the children of God. So listen to this. Anybody who says to you, I love the church or I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, that person doesn't understand what they're talking about. Right here, John tells us, if you love the Father, you will love all those who've been born of him. What is that? The brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot love God unless you love his church. Amen. By this, we know that we love the children of God. What does that mean? How do I love the brothers and sisters of Christ? When we love God and obey his commandments... I go back to the word of God and I say, listen, love is not first and foremost a warm, fuzzy feeling of affection in our heart. Love is a certain action. Love is acting, loving towards another person. And what does that mean? Obeying the commandments of God. God tells us how to treat one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to ask for forgiveness. We're to be kind and tenderhearted to one another. We're to speak the truth in love to one another. We're to gather together and sing songs with one another. We're to read the scripture to one another and teach each other the word of God. God has told us what it looks like to be a family and we have got to submit ourselves to his word and do what he says. Keep reading. Verse three. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. 
All right, we need to be re-educated here. We look at the word of God and the, and the commandments and we're like, man, that looks really hard and difficult and actually seems kind of constricting and man, it's really gonna limit my freedom. No, 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 no. The law of God, the commandments of God are the path to freedom, greater and greater freedom, right? We're like, oh, that, that guy said I couldn't, you know, do drugs and, and, and get drunk. He's limiting my freedom. And then you do drugs and you get drunk and then you become an alcoholic or a drug addict. And where did your freedom go? Now you're a slave to your sin. You have no freedom. You thought your path of freedom was going to lead to a big wide expanse, but it didn't. It led to slavery and now you're in chains. God's way goes through a little tiny door, Jesus Christ, his commandments. And when you walk through it, you open up to a wide expanse and there's freedom there. God's commandments lead us to the life of human flourishing. God's commandments lead us into happiness, lead us into pleasure, lead us into rejoicing. Verse four, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Listen to this. The world in this situation here, chapter two tells us what it means. And it means the sinfulness of the world. Doesn't mean the physicality of the world. He talks about the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and uh, one other thing I can't remember off the top of my head. Remember it in the first service, can't remember. Pride of life, thank you, pride of life. The sinfulness of our human flesh. God, here's the story, here's the story. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, Christ has overcome the world and you will too. Christ has defeated Satan and he will conquer the serpent chain him up, throw him in the lake of fire, and then Christ comes back again, and we literally overcome the world, and all the darkness is driven out, and everything wrong is made right, and we dwell together with God forever and eternity. The only way for that story to be yours is if you give your life to Jesus Christ and you're born of God. That's it. It's the only way. See, this is what Advent is all about. Jesus came to this earth to turn sinners into family members. Through Jesus, we have been given a new father. We've been born again into a new family with Christian brothers and sisters. Now, just a couple weeks ago, I got to spend time with a, a new brother from our church. He got to tell me what God was doing in his life and his family started coming to our church about a year or so ago and his wife was here for three or four weeks and was listening and hearing and reading the scripture and all the, all the different things and then she was, she was in her car and all of a sudden in her car, the Holy Spirit came upon her and she started weeping and confessing her sins and God saved her in her car. Now listen, many people ask, why don't we ever have altar calls? Because God doesn't need an altar call. God can save you wherever he wants to save you. And God moved through the power of the Holy Spirit, changed her heart right there. She went home, told her husband, her husband's like, oh man, what's this going to mean for me? Mean for me, right? He starts coming. He's coming to the church, walking, walking through this. And God, week after week after week of hearing the gospel, God causes him to be born again. And so he reaches out to me and he doesn't even know what's really happened. But he says, Justin, I need, I don't know what it means to lead my house. I don't know what it means to spiritually lead my wife. And I need you to teach me. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to it and I'm asking him questions. And I'm like, man, dude, God saved you. He's like, yeah, he has. I'm like, 
Have you been baptized? No, I need to get baptized. So, Praise God. I'm like this. And then he's telling me they're in the baptism process. And he's like, what's it look like to lead, lead my, my family spiritually? And we start walking through the, how to read his Bible and how to bring some of that stuff home. And it's very practical. It's very pragmatic. So many people, I know I thought this too when I, when I kind of started to understand this. I'm thinking, what does it mean to lead my family spiritually? Like God is just going to automatically make me into Billy Graham. And I get up on the dinner table and my kids open up your Bibles. John chapter three, it's going to be a minute, right? And my kids are like throwing spaghetti at me, right? Like this isn't going to work. Many men think, oh, I can't preach like Justin. That's not the job. The job isn't to go home and preach to your children or preach to your wife, right? Do not try that, men. Please do not try that. Honey, sit down. Ephesians chapter 6, that's where we're going to begin right now. Don't do it. That's trouble. What it means, men, is reading the word of God, seeing where we fall short, confessing our sins, leading our family in repentance, and then whatever it is we're learning, bringing it to our wife, bringing it to our kids, letting the word of God shape the culture of our home. It might be you just think about one little prayer you want to pray at dinner time. It might be if you can sing and play the guitar, bless you. Maybe you're singing and playing a hymn before dinner. It might be pulling up a YouTube video and kids watch this YouTube video. It might be one line from a devotional that you read that week. What it means is, men, whatever God is doing in your heart, bring it home to your kids. Let him see that you are under the submission of God and God has captured your heart and he wants their heart as well. Man, it, it was so fun to sit, it's so fun to me. I love those meetings. Those meetings where men, where people are telling me that God has saved them and they want to lead their family. It's so encouraging because I walk away going, God is building his family. God is doing what he said he would do. He's raising the spiritual, spiritual, spiritually dead and he's filling them with a love for his word and these men are stepping up and wanting to lead their families. Super encouraging. Spiritual renewal begins in the heart but then reverberates into the home as God turns the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, one thing the scripture tells us as fathers is that we should leave an inheritance to our children's children. Men, that of course means we should be industrious, we should be risk takers, we should be going out there and trying to uh, make as, in one sense, make as much, not, you know, not worshiping money, but make enough money to leave an inheritance to our children. But it's more than just monetary. It's also a spiritual legacy for our children. And one of the ways that we're, we can do that is by investing in our local church. I have been visiting many different churches. I've been visiting many different buildings, looking for a future home for us. And one of the things, the, the most beautiful um, buildings in the Quad Cities and the ones that uh, have been here for over 100 years, here's one thing they had in common. They had people that wanted to invest in the, in, in the now in order to see a legacy in the future. Right? They're long dead and the church still remains. Now, the sad thing 
Many of these churches, they're now apostate. They don't preach the gospel anymore. But they wanted to make, they wanted to leave a legacy for their children. Our culture today, we don't think about our kids. I, I, I know many people in their 60s and 70s that joke about spending their kids' inheritance as they drive a $100,000 mobile home off to travel the country. We don't even think about investing in the next generation, let alone two generations down the way. I'm calling our church to have a multi-generational vision that God is calling us to invest now in a future harvest that we may never see. It might be our kids, it might be our grandkids down the way. We want to buy a building so that we will have a strategic base for future gospel ministry in our city well into the future. And today, of course, is Giving Sunday. Now, many of you, maybe you've already given online. Hope Some of you, you know, you can give in the box here or up in the balcony. And listen, um, I'm praying that God would have that God, that we would have a, a, an exciting testimony after this weekend going into the new year. That this year has been actually quite difficult. This has been a very difficult year. We pushed pause on missional communities. We had a lot of kind of turnover and chaos that happened. And yet our church is still 10%. We grew 10% year over year from last year. Why? Because God is building his family. That's why. And I, I'm nervous to put a number out there, $100,000, I'm nervous to throw that out there. I don't like to throw that out there. We could get next week and maybe we didn't hit it. I don't know. Or maybe we just, we trust God with it. We give generously, sowing a seed in the future. And maybe we got a great testimony next week and we start off the year with a bang. That's what I'm hoping for. So as we prepare our gifts and as we come to celebrate the family meal this morning, let me pray for us. Gracious Father, I thank you for the work that you've done in us and through us at Sacred City so far, that we are part of your story, that you are raising up dragon slayers here in this gathering. You're raising up men and women to raise future dragon slayers to push back the works of Satan and push back the works of darkness. I pray that you would take this story and get it down deep into our bones. We would live this out. Jesus You are the ultimate dragon slayer and it's so (sighs) mysterious. You slayed the dragon by allowing him to put you to death on the cross. It's on the cross that your body was broken and your blood was shed and it was in the tomb, that dark tomb, that light came bursting forth and you got up from the dead conquering Satan and death itself. So as we eat, Father, we participate in that death. We participate in that resurrection. And we want that story to reinvigorate us and motivate us for future obedience. So we eat that in faith this morning. And we look forward to the future where you will come back again and you will crush the Satan Satan finally and you will throw him in the lake of fire and you will set your kingdom up on this earth and everything will be made new. We look forward to that day in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen.